0: This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that XDEMV Lotal Honor Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe.
1: Ocular Surface Disease it's complex, chronic and progressive, but rife with opportunity for the enterprising optometrist.
2: The mission of this podcast is to make this condition more understandable and accessible to those interested in specializing in it. So let's get to the point. Welcome to another episode of the To The Point podcast. My name is Jackie Garlick and I am joined by my co-host Leslie O'Dell. And listeners, we've got a great show today it's just me and Leslie talking to each other. And this is, that's always a good one. Cause I feel like lots of, we just um, spend the majority of the episode sort of goofing around here, but we do have something really great to talk about today. And we're gonna talk about one of the newest treatments for our dry eye patients. And the treatment we're gonna be talking about is the newly approved, it got approval, it got approved in May, MIBO. So
1: we're going to... And Jackie, before you jump further, why don't you tell everybody who's listening how to spell this new drug that we're anticipating? Leslie.
2: Okay, Leslie, first of all, before I was going to get there, but see, I knew you were going to be ahead of me. You're always ahead. Um, First of all, this... Leslie, you think that you were joining this call as a co-host, but really, in fact, you are being interviewed for this, okay? <laughs> because jokes on you, turns out you're actually a consultant for B&L. So that's wonderful because you know a lot about Mybo. And so this, you're a great person to talk to about this new drop. But as you said, I think one of the probably most pressing questions that everyone has is, why did they spell it? like that, Leslie? Why do they do that? Tell us.
1: Well, I don't actually have that answer for you, Jackie. Why are you, um, even, why are you <laughs> even here then? Podcast over. Oh okay, podcast over. Um, so for everyone listening, my bow, when you see it, won't be spelled M-E-I, like we think about my gland, but it's actually spelled M-I-E-B-O. Um, and honestly, I'm not sure why, but I'm sure that as this drug launches and we get trained, um, you know, the speaker's trained and we see a lot of that push, um, from the Bosch and LOM team that will have our answer. But for now, when you're charting and maybe making your wait list of patients to this new, um, therapeutic, just remember M I E B O. I actually have to think about that. (laughs) I thought,
2: thought the same thing. Well, so this drop, you know, was FDA approved in May this year and we have, you know, a lot of options to treat our meibomian gland dysfunction patients. We have thermal expression, we have IPL, we have the mainstay of at-home warm compresses. We have immunomodulators with help with, you know, um inflammation. But what do what are we what are we doing for like, uh, is there a drop that we can use? So that's something that we haven't or hasn't been explored yet until the advent of my So maybe we could talk a little bit about evaporation, since there's going to be a lot of talk about that as this
1: drop launches. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the big thing that you want to remember, and this goes back to some of the work from um, TFAS, which I know on our podcast, we always have to mention TFAS, but really they land, they have laid such great groundwork around dry eye. It's hard to talk about dry eye without mentioning something that they've done. But this dates back to maybe 2011, um, or maybe it was even their original um, dues report in 27, or 2007. But what What shifted around, I think it was 2011 with the MGD report, was just the focus on um, if you were trying to classify your dry eye patients, oftentimes you would think about your patient, do they have aqueous deficient dry eye or do they have evaporative dry eye? Um, And with that dry eye, um, or rather MGD workshop in 2011, this, this big number came out which was uh, about 86% of patients that are being treated have a combined approach to um, dry eye disease, which means you have about 36% of your patients that are living in a aqueous and evaporative state and then you have about fifty percent that are in just solely evaporative dry eye disease, and that leaves only about fourteen percent for aqueous deficient. So if, if you think way back to when dry eye was sort of becoming a a a thing that we were treating twenty some years ago, really a lot of that research was all pushing toward that fourteen percent in the aqueous deficient. So um, it's a really interesting you know change in mindset, and I think that our professions really embrace this one tremendously. I think optometry does really understand meibomian gland disease and evaporative dry eye and really do, you know, get that foundation started when they're when they're doing their patient evaluation.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like the thing most commonly talked about in dry eye forums and dry eye classes is how are we treating our meibomian gland dysfunction patients? And not that we're forgetting about you know, are aqueous deficient, but it it is certainly the hottest topic. I I agree with you.
1: Um, Some things, you know, to remember, and I, this always becomes kind of my why for, you know, why have I paid attention to dry eye for my patients is the impact that dry eye can have on our patients. So whether your patient, um, when comparing patients who had dry eye to not having dry eye, there's significant impact on um, daily activities. There's significant um, impact on pain and discomfort for these patients. And then one that I know we've touched on in previous episodes is there is an impact um, on anxiety and depression and just the mental state of our patients with dry eyes. So I think having these options expand are just going to really help ease some of that anxiety that patients have. Oftentimes, it stems around them fearing that they're going to run out of options and feel bad, you know? So I think, I think that the changing landscape is going to be a good one for patients. So when you think about evaporation, I'll ask you, um, when you think about evaporation, what are the things that you're kind of thinking about when you're looking at a patient and you see a rapid tear breakup time?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I do, in in my office I do a screening mybography on every patient. So I already have an idea of at least anatomically what their meibomian glands are looking like uh, bef- before I even see the patient. But in every you know, in, in in every exam, I'm literally just pushing on the eyelids just to get an idea of what sort of um, whether or not there's any obstruction there. So when I look at that rapid tear breakup time, now certainly Infl- inflammation on the ocular surface can cause a rapid tear breakup time, but also obstruction of the meibomian glands as well. So a really good look at the lid margin, any, you know, um, blepharitis that needs to be addressed, uh, as your vascularization on the lid margin, like in an ocularization patient, but I'm doing just really a good thorough assessment of, of, you know, these anterior segment structures.
1: And then how much do you spend thinking about lifestyle? You know, we're learning a lot about this environment, nutrition, you know, even the cosmetics that we talked about, um, on a recent podcast, but how deep, you know, how much time do you have really? And how deep do you go on that first patient encounter? You know, that's a good point. So I don't
2: know if, um, you have had patients that have come in this way, but the wildfires, the, in Canada have, um, I've really seen a lot more patients with flare ups that they come in saying, I think it was the wildfires that really did this to me. And so we talk. It's a great segue into saying, yeah, environment really does play a role. And inevitably, um, there is not time to go to do a deep dive on everything in terms of dry eye. Uh, And the environmental, cosmetic, etc., you know, exposures and exasperations. But we certainly talk about it, you know, nutrition plays a role and we sort of um, will kind of briefly touch on on all of that in my first exam and then dive deeper in subsequent exams, you know, accordingly.
1: Uh, you know, it might be a great place to build on either your patient portal or education pieces that maybe companies have as lead behinds, because as, you know, the COVID um, restrictions are lifting, I think that those materials can be really helpful and save us time because it is a hard conversation to have. And, you know, it, it there is a lot to cover. And so just having some kind of resource for patients to reference after they leave our office would be really helpful. So maybe you could get working on that. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I do have a good handout uh, that I kind of you know do check off what is needed along with some other information. But one thing that I am really lacking on is cosmetics. I do probably need a better. I need a booklet. It's not a handout. We're beyond the handout now at this point. I feel like we need a booklet to cover everything.
1: There you go. You can become an author and and. and well. <laughs> You can write a book. I like it. I I know that um, Pam Terrio has a book about dry eye tips for her patients. Um, some of the big ones, just to keep it simple in the lane, would be talk about <clears throat> sleep because if patients aren't getting enough sleep, that's going to feed into the evaporative stress that we're seeing with the uh, rapid tear breakup time. Um Sometimes that feeds into the next one, which is there's a lot um, of research right now around stress and its impact on um, dry eye disease. But for me, if I have a patient that's not sleeping very well, you know a lot of times that's stress related. And then another big one that is kind of easy to talk about because everyone's using it um, a constant battle for reducing our screen time, but is just the you know, how many hours are we spending on screens and what can we do to, improve kind of the ocular health while we're doing that. And the big, one of the big reasons for this is partial blinks, right? So we know that when our patients are on their screens, they're blinking significantly less, and those full blinks are needed to um, really spread the tear film across and help delay evaporation and really um, improve homeostasis for the ocular surface.
2: Yeah, in some ways, I think this topic can be overwhelming to a patient to say, "Oh, well, we got this going," and then we have environment, and then we have like hormonal things, and then we have you know. Yeah. But but in other ways, I think it can actually be really helpful for a patient to know we have a lot of modifiable risk factors that are contributing to their dry eye. So in 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 other ways, I think it is helpful for a patient to know, "Oh, hey, I can do things on my own that can help improve my situation."
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, the, empowering them, I I think really does help. I feel like the dry eye patients are their biggest advocates, right? They're always, oh yeah, you know, it, over the years I've been doing dry eye, those are my patients that come in with literature. <laughs> they actually like print it off and show me a study or show me something new that's available on the market and ask me what I think about it. So they're definitely, you know, interested in learning as much as they can. Um, but, you know, impact the impact on vision is probably the biggest one that we can feel, you know, that we know that we're in the business of vision, but patients still to this day, do not think variable vision has anything to do with dry eye disease. Right. So, you know, that is one that I feel, you know, as the literature grows, it's been really exciting to see, Hey, this tear film really does have a big impact on vision. We're all in the business of giving our patients the very best visit vision. So improving the quality of the tear film is something that should be paramount in all of our exams, right? It should be something that we're focused on for everybody because we want all of our patients seeing the best. So whether it's glare, what's interesting for me is when I see patients back and they're improving their ocular surface, they'll tell me things that the glare at night is less or that they're able to use their screens more or they could even read at the end of a day when before they couldn't do that. So, you know, I think that when we hear blurry vision, we don't want to always assume glasses, and we want to make sure that that dry eye evaluation is part of those exams.
2: I think that the most useful thing I have found is to talk more about the blurry vision when a patient does have this. But, you know, like, do you, is it constant? Is it always blurry or is it come and go? Is it fluctuate? And that fluctuating vision is really critical to sort of tease out your dry eye patients. But in reality, you can really tell a dry eye patient when you've got them in the phoropter. You know, they answer one way, one time. They answer another way, another time. They're wishy-washy kind of on their landing. So, um, you know, those people are easier to kind of uh, spot, you know, instead of just saying, oh, it's just a glasses prescription.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and you usually say like, well, I didn't even touch anything, and you're saying yeah. clear <laughs> or clearer. <Yeah. laughs> Forget the one or two. I didn't even move an, a dial.
2: <laughs> you know, Leslie, you bring up uh, you know patients being their best advocates, dry eye patients, and and bringing in new information and new studies. Let's uh, use that as our segue into talking about Mybo and what this even is and how does it work. So give us a little give us a little rundown on it.
1: Well, so it was studies under the name NOVO-3, and like we talked about, is now going under the trade name MIBO, and thankfully, that word is easier to say than what its chemical makeup is, which is um, plurifluorohexalactane, I believe. Yeah, (laughs) you did it. So a couple of things that really stand out about this novel, and, and the science has been around... Um, in Europe, um, I think in Germany and, and a few other countries for about a decade. And so it's not brand new science, but it's brand new to us here in the United States. One of the things that is unique to MIBO is the small drop size. So if you, and, and part of that is because there isn't water. So all of the drops that we have access to have, they're water based. Um, and so that is part of the, the, the composition and the delivery system, if you will, of the drop. And that's one of the biggest things that sets this drug apart is there is no water as part of its solution. And so if the normal drop size of a water-based eye drop is about 40 or 50, 50 microliters, this medication is about 11 microliters. I have had uh, a patient use the product from Germany. Um, and it's so small that literally they can almost not even feel that anything hits their eye. It's amazing. Um, but that it's not the same way that patients like overwhelm their eye and flood it. And then they have all the drops streaming down. Um, but the upside of this is, you know, it can last much longer because it's a micro drop.
2: Is the bottle size different? Like is the, or is the bottle tip? different than like, you know, the I, I think of like nano dropper, which I use to sort of do a smaller drop for patients, but is it is this drop bottle different as well?
1: You know, I'm thinking about this bottle that I had as a, a sample, not of my bow, but of um its European um sister, I'll call it. <laughs> I don't know what you would call that. But I don't think it was much different. And it didn't look like the top you're describing. Um, and because it's preservative free, even in the bottle, it's not having to go through that system to like eliminate the preservative. It's preservative free. Um, the other thing that's really cool about it is the spreadability. I think the traditional drop sat there like a water droplet. And when you put the my um, bow on the same surface, it's spread out completely because it has a much lower surface tension. So it, that's why it's spreading out over the patient's eye um, and they they don't realize that that's happening
0: this episode of to the point is sponsored by tarsus tarsus pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients starting with eye care Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that XDEMV honor Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. So So when you think about like the
1: wax on the car and the beads of droplets, I think that's the traditional drops, but this still can like lubricate the surface, um, within that one drop. And then what's really why I think evaporation, you know, has been really the lead in to us talking today is this, this still like kind of blows my mind. But if an eye drop traditionally is sitting on the ocular surface for about three to five minutes, they're finding this in the ocular tissues and the ocular surface for as long as 360 minutes, six hours after the drop is instilled.
2: Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, that's the issue with eye drops, right? You want long, longer contact time, but that you know, the things that provide that are ointments. That's a really longer contact time, but that's also very visually blurring. And Mybo, as I have read, is not. It has very minimal vision blurring. Um, you know, with, with the drop. So yeah, that's uh, all sounds wonderful.
1: (laughs) So all the good things too, that got, you know, got it through the FDA. And I think also in an earlier approval date than anticipated um, were their studies, Gobi and and Mojave. And these were all the things that you look for in good research, multi-center randomized, double-masked studies. And they looked at saline, compared to NOVO-3 or what's now known as uh, MIBO. And the patients were um, seen for a screening visit. They had their randomization day one visit. They were seen at um, day 15, um, day th- day 29, and then again at day 57. What is a little bit different is that it is QID dosing, and these studies were QID dosing instead of what we're kind of used to seeing with BID dosing. And do
2: you know how that will impact our contact lens wearers? Can you put this drop on top of a contact lens? That's what I that's what I first think of when I go to a QID dosing.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think the label is going to say that you can, um, but I think if you look at that first Uh, You know, off label, it seems like if it's having residence time of 360 minutes with one drop, QID dosing might not be needed for everybody. But I think that's going to be something we have to learn, you know, as it it comes into use. Um, So their studies included patients that were over the age of 18. The Gobi had about 597 patients, and Mojave had about 620. And the primary ad- outcome was um, eye dryness score at day fifty-seven, um, and they also obviously looked at safety outcomes and second um, some secondary outcomes. But um, let me just jump to what I wanted to share about signs and symptoms. So change in baseline from total. There were two things in that um, initial study, and I. And I was just getting caught up on the abbreviation, so my apologies there, but change in baseline from total corneal fluorescein staining at day 57, so their end day, and then also change in baseline um, from that eye dryness score on a visual analogs at day 57. So it, again, was looking at signs and symptoms, and they were able to achieve um, superiority in both um, studies for both of those outcomes.
2: You know, I this this uh visual analog dryness. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's something I I had to really look up prior to this podcast.
1: <laughs> oh, so and tell me if I'm wrong, but the way I think about that is um kind of like a happy face on one side and a yes. sad face on the other, and it's a scale zero to one hundred and it's just like at that moment in time, where do you feel? Yeah.
2: But I haven't. Have you seen that in other studies? Maybe I am not paying attention, but I was sort of like, wait, a visual analog dryness scale. I'm like,
1: I actually am into this. I kind of like the idea of a visual analog. scale. Yeah. So it is. uh, I will say the way that I've used it in research um, that I I have used it in research before and the way that it looks when when I do that is they're given like a rule. I feel like they're given a ruler or we're given a ruler and they have to, maybe they just do mark randomly between the, uh, the zero to 100, but then we sometimes had to measure it. And that's how we got like what their symptom was. But basically it would be like you were measuring zero to 100 millimeters or something.
2: Well, as a side note, I, I, Literally, I do a speed score and and on all of my patients as as well. But I also really just ask them, hey, what what's your level of dryness on a scale of one to ten? 10? Ten's terrible, one's minimal, and I just feel like that provides me with a lot of information. So I'm all about these uh, visual scales or this sort of one one to ten or zero to ten, zero to one hundred sort of um, scales. I do feel like that provides a lot of you know sometimes more reality, I don't know, than a speed score. Sometimes, you know, you're trying to just be like, how bad are you exactly? Can you just tell me, you know, like, where are we? Are we, sometimes it's surprised. Like if someone's like, oh, I'm an eight out of 10. I'm like, oh, yikes. Okay. Let's deal with that. And then somebody's like, oh no, it's like a one or two. It just gives you a lot of information. I think with something very simple like that.
1: Yeah. I think it's just good to also like, you know, you can get overwhelmed by those numbers, especially you walk into a speed that's 28 out of 28 and you're like, where do you even start? And I think it's just really good to, in those people ask those two questions that we talked about before. What is the thing that bothers you the most day to day? And when does it bother you the most? Yeah. Totally. And then I think it just really allows you to kind of hone in on what might be missing. Because as you know, a lot of times you, you know, a lot of times these patients are here after failing treatment elsewhere or even failing our own treatments, right? And that we're trying to figure out where we might've gone wrong. You know, I have I have very limited experience um, other than, you know, kind of working with Bosch and Lom on the journey of, uh, of approval, if you will, just a little bit behind the scenes, like how do we document mybomian gland dysfunction in our office? And I will tell you that it's really hard to document my booming gland dysfunction in an EHR, right? So I would first say, you know, in order for diseases to kind of jump on the radar and get uh, reimbursement and different things like that, it it does fall a little bit on prevalence, right? And so I do think it's important to not only code MGD like blepharitis, these codes, I think, started sometime after 2015. I remember the change where you can say my meibomian gland dysfunction, upper lid, lower lid, right eye, left eye, um, and just becoming familiar with that. And honestly, off the top of my head, I don't know the code, but I can see it in my EHR Um, and just documenting that, right. And especially like, you know, even though this doesn't have MGD approval in your mind, you know that MGD and evaporation go hand in hand. So this has signs and symptoms of dry eye disease. And it also has some language around improving evaporation. Yeah, yeah. we have that.
2: Evaporation,
1: yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that for you to code it you know, appropriately so you kind of can start thinking about where does it fit. But then the other big question that I have is where does it fit with my treatments? you know, and I've already been thinking about this and there's all, you know, for me, I already have a, a long list of patients on my kind of wait list for when this drug hits the market, which they're hoping Q3 now is um, the estimation that I've, I've heard from the team. And that's just now doing, you know, the manufacturing that happens after you get the FDA approval. So I think that by the end of the year, we'll definitely have product in hand. But um, what I was going to say is, I have a lot of patients that have been through gland clearing treatments, whether it's tear care, ILUX, Lipiflow, IPL, you know, all of them, and they still just can't seem to keep good tear breakup time, right? They aren't normalized. They may have improved gland function, but they're not perfect glands functioning. And so for me, that's one of my first patients that I'm excited to try this out on. And then the total opposite end of the spectrum, which are the patients that really have no glands for me to treat, and they have instant tear breakup times and tremendous evaporation, you know, I'm really hopeful that it may give them options that I don't yet have available um, with what's, you know, currently approved. So for me right now, I'm kind of on both ends of the spectrum, thinking about where it fits for my patients. Um, I'm pretty sure the language around contact lenses is going to be not over top, but don't hold me to that either. Mm-hmm. That I mean, that sounds appropriate.
2: <laughs> I feel like what, that's what they all are. I I think this is you know yet another good option for us to treat dry eye patients. It's a different mechanism than what we have seen before, so I think that's very interesting. And I think you know it's great to just try it on everyone. You know, I I I think that's how that's how I get better familiarity with a drop and it's, you know, how effective it is and for whom it seems to be the most effective. Um, I assume, oh, I shouldn't assume you don't know this, but I'm going to guess you don't know in terms of pricing or or patient access, which is always the biggest issue when a new medication comes out. Do they have to fail something or other? Have you heard any news on that front?
1: I'm not so sure about failure. I mean, I know it's going to be a barrier for Medicare patients. you know, obviously they're always the trickiest ones with these new technologies, but um, I think that they're going to come out like everybody else with good rebates for our commercial patients. And really, the more we do prescribe early in the journey of MyBO, the better it's going to be for the patient in the end, because it, because the insurance companies need to see those scripts to see that there's the demand and the need for the drug for them to put it on formularies. So as sad as it sounds, you know, writing those prescriptions early on really does um, help the patient in the end. And I mean, look back to the launch of um, Lufitagrass and, and Zydra, we optometry were 60% of those scripts in their first year. So I think that we can really, I think MGD and evaporative dry eye is, is really in the wheelhouse of optometry. And we already kind of, you know, have taken ownership of all the other things, nutraceuticals, heat masks, um, lipid tears, all of that. And I think it just should be an easy transition for us to feel comfortable prescribing this medication. I hope, you know, I hope to see that we can, push beyond that 60%. That would be really exciting to see.
2: One last thing I wanted to ask you is early on in some of the literature about Novo3 now called MIBO, there was talk of this drop being able to penetrate into the meibomian glands. Is that, was that, is that still a thing? Are they still talking about that?
1: So definitely not part of these trials that got through the FDA Um, I I was kind of hopeful that that science was going to be the thing as well, that it was changing the composition of the mybum. But I think this stability um, in the tear film is going to really be big for for patients. Um, But no, that wasn't part of the trial. It was really just improving corneal staining and then improving patient symptoms. And then, of course, they looked at things like... um, you know, tolerance and all of those things. And really it's a very comfortable drop. So hopefully that will be, um, an easy trans you know, transition for these patients. I was just looking real quick. Um, blurred vision was maybe the most common, um, AE, uh, adverse event in the Gobi study. And it looks like blepharitis which is sort of random was the most common adverse event in the uh, Mojave study. So not our typical pain. Actually I pain only one one patient. Yeah. So that's really I mean that alone is exciting, right? We don't have to talk about this is going to sting and burn and why would that happen? Yeah.
2: <laughs> that sounds yeah. awesome to me. It's a nicer side effect profile for sure.
1: It's good. Yes, yeah, so I would say get your lists ready. Um, I have heard that there might not be as many samples as we've seen with other product lines at the beginning. I think that they want to have some first experience, maybe with, ah, you know, the doctor themselves, or maybe a staff member or a patient. Um, but uh, the reason for that is I think the sample bottle and the and the script bottle might be pretty equivocal right now um, which might change in the future um, uh, some of the science that is translating into the Bosch and lom is coming from uh Nova Leak, which is a german company that developed the medication the medication so that might change over the next year or two but i would just what i'm doing is making a list and so i know as soon as i have access to you know drug i know what the rebate is i know you know who to send to the pharmacy i can just actually send them to the pharmacy and then schedule them back maybe a month after.
2: You know, I'm I, as you're talking about the sample size being similar to maybe the actual prescription, this reminds me of ISUVIS and that gigantic uh, sample bottle that they, that they give. But I'm wondering if we, since we have such a smaller drop, that if that is going to feel like there is more value in that bottle as, for the price as compared to some of our other options that have the larger drops just because you're conserving and getting the most of, uh, of the bottle for, you know, for each drop. So.
1: I do think it's going to last the patient.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Leslie, thank you for being my guest
1: today (laughs) on this podcast. (laughs) I mean, maybe you were my guest. You just didn't even know it. I pulled it over on you. (laughs) No, it's Um, good to get to, you know, get back to just how we started. It's fun to have our guests. Don't get us wrong. We love the guests, but sometimes it's nice just to talk to you. I know.
2: Yeah, same. All right. Well, thanks for talking about Mybo. Uh, I'm interested to hear how this plays out as we get experience with the drop and where we see this having the most impact for our patients. So more to come.
1: And now for the To The Point wrap-up. Fall of 2023 will bring us the newly approved Mibo, a a four-time-a-day medication for signs and symptoms of dry eye disease, recently approved and being carried through Bosch and Long. This medication is unique because of its small drop size, 11 nanometers, its lack of water-containing eye drops, preservative-free nature, and its tremendous spreadability over the ocular tissues. It is found on the surface of the ocular tissues 360 minutes after drop installation. I think it's going to prove to be a great addition to our treatment bag, another option for our patients who are suffering from dry eye disease and evaporative dry eye disease.